Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Proceeds go to 3CR Community Radio. Help keep independent, progressive voices on the air. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It is the 15th of May. And it's going to be 14 degrees and showering today. I don't know why I bother telling people that. <laughs> it's cold. Yeah. Put on a hat. Mm. Don't put your shower too hot. Make your skin itchy. <laughs> but it's so good. I know. <laughs> I know. All right, well, don't come to me when your neck's all red. <laughs> um, so we thought we would open the show um, by calling attention to some pretty horrible news that um, has come out, or is, is still live updates are still happening, but... Um, that we woke up to this morning. Um, Al Jazeera is reporting that at least 55 Palestinians were killed on Monday in Gaza by the Israeli Defense Force and more than 2,700 others were wounded. The Israeli army fired live ammunition, tear gas and firebombs at protesters assembled along several points near the fence with Israel. The demonstrations were said to be occurring um, in around the time of the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, um, but they are also involved in the weeks-long build-up movement calling for the right of return to Palestine, for Palestinian refugees who were forcibly expelled in the Nakba of 1948. So um, pretty horrible news to wake up to, and um, I mean, he's hoping that we get some kind of solidarity statements or a bit of action from Australian politicians, but I guess I'm not going to hold my breath. Hmm. Mm. Um, yeah. So you don't think that it's likely that there'll be an international response? Uh, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if history is anything to go off. There'll be lots of thoughts and prayers on, on yeah. Twitter, if, um, if that helps. And it doesn't. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we might um, go to a song to start this show off um, and then we have an action-packed full of interviews and pre-recorded content because Ayan is not with us this morning mm. so she sent an interview our way. Mm. Yeah. Should we quickly talk about what what interviews we've got lined up for today? Go for it. So first up I'm going to be speaking with Beth Muldoon who is from Message which is a, a sort of a teacher network of people that are involved with environmental and social justice issues in teaching and education. And we're going to be discussing NAPLAN, uh, which the students are in Australia set to sit this week, Mm. and the issues with it and why a lot of teachers are against it. What else have we got? 
Can I just say I'm loving Teacher George? <laughs> it's like it's one of my favorite iterations of you, George Michael. It's good. I feel like I've got like a theme now, and I'm really mm. interested in a lot of these, you know, a lot of these issues going on with the education system. It is crucially important. Yeah. It's nice. We've got the law theme. We've got the education yeah. theme. <laughs> we should branch out a little. Mm. Um, but on the law theme. <laughs> Um, I'll be talking to Elena Pappas from the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women um, at about 7.30, and it's about women in the criminal justice system. I don't want to spoil it too much, but um, it's a great um, it's a great advocacy centre, and she's great, so... Yeah. That sounds awesome. Um, and then I'll be talking to Santilla Chingayipe, who... Oh, my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> so excited! That her spot at the Feminist Writers' Festival and just... Um, her work and a whole bunch of other things. Mm. And then we've got Mikara Ramsing, who um, is the founder of this incredible website called Ethnic LGBT Plus, and she'll be talking about um, her work on the on that website and the place of people of colour in the queer community in the journey ahead. And to wrap up. Um, Anya is incredibly modest, but we're not going to let her get away with that. Anya has been working really hard on a project called Justice Diverted, which you will hear more about later in the show. Um, but we will be speaking with one of her teammates about the project, um, essentially looking at the role that the prosecution can play in diversion for um, young people within the criminal justice system. And, you know, diversion is obviously so important. We don't need people going in and out of the revolving door of the prison system. So we're super excited about today's show. And thank you for joining us. And Georgie. Let's kick off with a track. This yes. one is by a local artist named Jala. And this song is called Junior Spirit. to Tuesday Breakfast. On the line we have Beth from Message to talk to us about NAPLAN, the National Assessment Program which tests the literacy and numeracy skills of students in years 3, 4, 7 and 9. It aims to assess students' educational standards so that areas of improvement can be noted and schools and parents are able to see the results. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Beth. Uh, it's my pleasure. So before we take on NAPLAN, can you first tell tell us and our listeners a little bit about Message? Oh, yes, of course. Um, so Message is a network of educators um, working in a wide range of settings. So we're from schools, universities, TAFE, um, environmental programs, early childhood learning. Um, and we've got a Facebook group that's an open platform for about 300 of us um, to share ideas and resources. Um, but within that network, there's a smaller organising collective made up of about 10 school teachers. Um, and as that collective, we plan workshops and public discussions, um, and we also campaign for more just and humane educational policies. Great. It sounds like, yeah, a really awesome network and community. Can you tell us why Message is, uh, I suppose, against the NAPLAN test? Yeah, so... Um, one of the reasons that I'm on the show today is to talk about a statement that I helped to write, 
along with other teachers in the Message Collective, and we're calling on the federal government to get rid of NAPLAN, and we're also encouraging parents to withdraw their children from sitting the test. Um, and that's because teachers can't withdraw their students, um, but parents can opt to withdraw their children. So um, technically, by encouraging parents to do this, we're breaching public, um, public sector codes of conduct, and that could be even putting our jobs at risk. But it's kind of surprising that we've actually got 80 educators signed on and 60 of them are working in Australian schools right now. Um, so this system of testing, the reason we're against it, um, it's, I mean, it's been widely acknowledged that NAPLAN tests are defective. That's something that um, even the state education ministers in the AU are acknowledging and they're calling for it to be reviewed. Um, they're saying it doesn't really give us reliable information about our students' um, literacy or numeracy abilities. But we're going further than that and we're saying it's not these specific tests that are the problem, it's this whole approach of reducing students' learning to standardised test scores and then enforcing competition between schools. And that's something that's been really damaging our students. It's having a really negative impact um, because principals are encouraging this culture of um, teaching to the test and all these hours wasted on practice tests. Students are losing time they might have for, um, you know, meaningful learning, developing creativity, social skills, critical thinking. Um, and also there's a really large amount of performance pressure on these students and you know, we already have really big problems with stress and anxiety amongst young people, and this is really making the problem even worse. So, sorry, did you say that students will do practice tests for NAPLAN? Yeah, that's, that becomes a really large part of the curriculum. Why? And What's the incentive think, for students to do that if, it's, if the test is just to, to sort of measure where students are at? Why, why is there that pressure to do well? Well, coming from the principals and the teachers... Um, they are under pressure because, um, well, these NAPLAN scores, the average NAPLAN score of each school is published on the My School website and that becomes a way for parents to look online and see where they want to send their, um, their children. So that's, yeah, it's really high stakes for principals mm. because they get paid according to enrolment or that's how the schools get their money. So... Yeah, it's really bad for them if they've got a low NAPLAN average score. Mm. And the fact that you're asking parents to withdraw suggests that you and the other teachers and people involved with Message do feel quite strongly that this is, um, you know, not a beneficial test. Um, who else supports yeah. this move against NAPLAN? Um, so we've got about 80 educators signed on to this statement. Um, so far, yeah, we haven't really had any... Um, education ministers or other politicians really support this to that level. And same with the AU, they've been fairly um, modest in their critiques and they're kind of calling for it to be reviewed, but it's a bit unclear whether it will just be replaced with a different test. I mean, because this NAPLAN tests are embarrassingly inaccurate mm. and, you know, lots of... There's been already people like overseas education experts reviewing it and, and yes. pointing that out. In my research, I found... Yeah. Um, someone called Les Perelman, one of the world's leading experts in education, who has reviewed NAPLAN and concluded, and to quote Les directly, concluded that it is one of the most absurd and the least valid of any test that I have seen. It's a pretty strong statement. Yeah, that's, well, that's the writing test in particular. Um, mm -hmm. You've got Margaret Wu, she's an education academic who's pointed out the flaws of the numeracy assessment. 
So there's lots of different issues with the different tests. Um, but it all really stems from the fact that they're standardised tests. And, you know, if you're trying to assess a student's numeracy, that's a hugely broad range of skills that you're trying to assess there. And, mm. you know, what Margaret Wu has pointed out is that with those 40 questions that are asked, you know, based on which ones are asked, you know, what particular skills are being tested, um, student scores can vary massively. So you could get different tests and score within one year's growth. That's kind of the average um, variation. So that means that, you know, these tests aren't really able to show whether a student has improved or not because they're just so broad. Mm -hmm. So that could be improved with a, you know, different test. But there's, you know, there's other issues with standardised testing that, you know, you can't really overcome that there's all this performance pressure, the texts are decontextualised from what the students are actually learning at the time. So maybe they've just been learning algebra and that's what's being tested so they're going to perform better. Um, you know, you could have students just being nervous or mm. sick or not performing well at the time and this snapshot isn't really giving an accurate picture of what they can do. And in terms of issues of inequality in our education system, what is the impact of NAPLAN? Um, well, I think it really comes back to that um, results being published online. That's one of the major issues. Um, so you have, you know, in other countries, you can have standardised tests given to samples of students to help um, governments make education policies. But NAPLAN is published as if, you know, this is getting high NAPLAN results is something you can advertise, you know, to show how good your school is. And that's how parents decide where they're going to send their children um, but obviously only some parents can afford to actually move house or pay private school fees to avoid going to the local public school. Um, and that just leads to a concentration of disadvantage in these schools that have the least resources. Um, and you've got that problem made a lot worse by these unfair funding arrangements. So you have private schools in Australia that get more money than public schools, more government money. And it's really absurd. It's something that is quite unique to Australia. So that's, I guess that's kind of the main issue in terms of inequality. Mm. It's just, yeah, creating wider gaps between schools. And in terms of, I'm sort of interested in the opposing view in regard to this topic. So Patrick Wood, writing for the ABC in an article yesterday, has argued that the criticism, criticisms made against NAPLAN are not backed by evidence, following a report from the Centre for Independent Studies. And the article reinforces the merits of NAPLAN to improve schools and teaching, to provide transparency and accountability, and lastly to show which students are falling behind and identify problems concerning school systems which could be improved as a result. And some of the arguments made in the article is that there's no... Um, that it is merely a means of me measuring educational outcomes. It's not meant to improve the, uh, the st where students are at. I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Yes. I could. So Centre for Independent Studies, mm. uh, you know, a notorious right-wing think tank. They're funded by billionaires, you know, by Shell, by BHP Billiton. They're pretty much just trying to put out what they think is going to be best for the people that fund them or for themselves. It's, they're, they're flimsy arguments. So, I mean, yeah, the idea that it's not about improving results, did you say? And yes. Just trying to measure outcomes. Well, 
yeah, as I've just pointed out and lots of other experts have pointed out, it's not really doing an effective job of that. So the tests are very inaccurate. But also there's no real reason why we have to waste so much public money testing every single student when most countries would just test samples of different student populations to shape education policy. So, I mean, you can talk about it at that level or the level of students and on individual level, parents and teachers wanting to know how students are going. Um, but there's better ways of assessing students than these standardised tests and, you know, this just provides bureaucrats with data, but it doesn't really help teachers at all. Mm. And what about the other point about uh, that, it, that it's um, like some critics say that it doesn't test critical thinking or creative thinking, uh, but in this report they argue that you need to test the basics and you can't learn critical thinking until you learn those basics. What would you say to that? Well, I think... I. I so the whole thing about teaching the basics, that's something that does um, come up a lot. And there's just kind of this misconception that in order to teach basic numeracy and literacy skills, you have to do it in a really abstract um, kind of dry way. But you can teach those skills through meaningful tasks, through um, projects and through ex learning experiences that are really motivating for students, not just through learning how to fit these tests. And, yeah, I think that's probably the key point there. Mm. And I think the point you made before about uh, the Centre for Independent... What was it called? Centre for Independent Studies being backed by conservative groups and the fact that this is such a politicised issue um, and that when you read these facts at the outset, you think, oh, that seems like I can understand what they're saying there, but when you actually talk to teachers and people that... Are actually, you know, doing this work, you can really mm -hmm. understand why there's a, um, such a strong um, move against it. I'm just wondering, what are the alternatives and are there any other countries that we can learn from? Um, well, as I was saying, you know, you've got countries like Finland that is, you know, known to be one of the highest performing countries when they do these international standardised tests, yet they don't do any themselves. Like, they don't run these tests for their students. Um, I think they do one there's like a test to get into university at the end of school. But they've had their whole education shaped with that experience of just, you know, learning and having teachers design assessments. So teachers have, you know, a whole range of strategies to gain knowledge of where each of our students are at and, you know, more complex knowledge about what are their strengths, their weaknesses, um, yeah, on a very personal level. And we really need time to prepare mm -hmm. lessons that challenge each of our students and can motivate them. And that's something that's not really allowed for at the moment where, you know, one of the big things we need to change is teachers need more time to prepare their classes. And for us, you know, the alternative is teacher assessment. It's not about some government, um, you know, enforcing this testing regime mm. and trying to gain this data. It's just too decontextualised and it's not accurate and it, it gives students really the wrong message about learning. They're going to feel like they're just competing for test scores and that's not what it should be about. Mm, and reducing them to this, to this score. Um, just as a last question, how can teachers or other people interested in supporting message get involved? Um, well, we have our Facebook group um, 
so people can look that up. So it's Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice, or Message, M-E-S-E-J. So our website as well, we've got a website, it's message.org, and our um, email is messageforum at gmail.com. So any of those ways would be yeah great. We've got events coming up soon, so um, we're kind of trying to balance that, the focus of looking at education policy and commenting and getting involved in public debates and then also creating spaces for us to learn and, you know, share our knowledge. So we will be having a couple of events later in the year that will be more focused on some of the other issues we're dealing with. So we've got um, earlier in the year we looked at issues around safe schools and respectful relationships and teachers' role in um, educating students about sex and gender and sexuality. Um, and we're kind of looking at how we're going to um, shape our policies based on that as well at the moment. But later in the year, we're going to be having a workshop. Or, or I think it'll be a panel discussion, actually, about Indigenous youth incarceration and the education system. So if teachers are interested in that, then they can look us up and um, that'll be happening in early August. Well, it sounds like such a great network and so needed. Thank you so much for your time today, Beth. I know you're very busy, and thanks for informing us about NAPLAN. Have a nice day. Thank you. Thanks. So that was Beth from Message talking about the issues of NAPLAN. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, George, Lauren and Anya. We're missing Ayan today, unfortunately. Hopefully she'll be back. She will be back next week, I'm sure. And I hope she's having a nice sleep. So I'm going to play a song by 3070, which I played last week. This track is called Steady Hazing. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren, George and myself, Anya. Shout out to Ayan who um, is feeling a bit unwell today. Next up, we have Eleanor Pappas, Senior Lawyer and Practice Manager at the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women, also known as LACWA. Thank you for joining us, Eleanor. Thanks, Anya. It's good to be here. Um, can you tell us about LACWA and the kind of services that you offer? Sure. So we were established in 2016 and it was really in response to the rising imprisonment rates for women in Victoria. Mm -hmm. At the time, there was no existing service that was specifically for women in the criminal justice system to help them with their legal matters. Mm -hmm. 
So what we do is to provide legal advice and representation in relation to criminal matters, and that includes bail applications. Mm -hmm. uh, we also assist with infringements and fines, uh, victims of crime assistance tribunal applications, and in some circumstances, intervention audits. Mm. And alongside this legal advice and representation, we provide case management. And the idea of this is to link the clients in with the services that they need to address the causes of their offending. Mm. Yeah, and um, you've recently won the Victoria Civil Justice Award. Um, that's very exciting. Yes, yes, from the Australian Lawyers Alliance. We're mm. thrilled to be receiving that. Congratulations. Um, and you. LACWA, as you've mentioned, is specifically for women in the criminal justice um, system. Um, what are the problems that are plaguing women in, in the criminal justice space? Well, what we've found through our practice, and there's also a lot of research around this, mm. is that the background and circumstances of female offenders and their pathways to offending are different to men. Mm. So women in the criminal justice system experience higher rates of mental health problems, um, related drug and alcohol abuse. Um, they're at risk of homelessness in, in much higher numbers. And they also have uh, uh, more significant parenting responsibilities. Mm. Um, but by far the most significant factor um, is the per pervasive nature of previous trauma and victimisation. Mm. And this is especially in relation to family violence. So the recent Royal Commission into Family Violence found that over 70% of women in prison identified as victims of family violence. Mm. So it's these issues of trauma and victimisation and family violence uh, that really characterise the women that are being caught up in, in the criminal justice system at the moment. Mm. And the possibility of re-traumatisation is much higher as well. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And they're, they're dealing with a system that's not very well equipped to address those sorts of issues. Mm. Um, and the tough-on-crime rhetoric has been gaining momentum recently, especially in the, in the current election year. What are your thoughts on this rhetoric generally, and how does this affect women in particular? Well, what we found is that this tough-on-crime agenda really is developed in response to acts of horrific violence by male perpetrators. Mm. So we're already dealing with a system that is uh, developed to deal with male offenders and now these extreme acts have triggered even further punitive responses um, to deal with those horrific acts of violence. And what's occurred then is a toughening of bail laws and a reduction in the opportunities for parole. Mm -hmm. So this is then having flow-on effects to uh, female offenders who are not committing those sorts of offences but because the bail law toughening applies across the board mm -hmm. they're being caught up in this system as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a system informed by the experiences of male offenders and um, it's a knee-jerk reaction to those actions of male offenders but it's having flow-on effects to females mm -hmm. and it's seen a huge increase in the remand population in prison, so uh, the women who are yet to be sentenced and yet to be found guilty, um, who are now being warehoused in prison because it's much harder for them to be granted bail. Mm. And uh, what this does is also ignores the factors that led to the offending for women in the first place. So um, the tough on crime approach is not dealing with the underlying issues of social disadvantage, poverty, homelessness, and um, as we've discussed, the, the trauma that has been faced by these women prior to their entering the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And LACWA prides itself, and, and you've mentioned it before as well, on providing holistic support services for women which you know go towards 
addressing the underlying issues of criminality as well. What does this mean? And do you think that support and therapeutic services should be offered in conjunction with legal services by default? Yes. So, look, what we think is that it's important to recognise that the legal problem is just a symptom of much deeper ongoing issues that must also be addressed. Mm -hmm. So if you're not addressing those issues, you're never going to address the legal problem and you're going to see people cycling in and out of prison and uh, re-offending at greater numbers. Mm -hmm. So what we do is to provide case management alongside the legal advice and representation. And this links in women with the specialist services they need to address those issues. Mm -hmm. And... um, We think that having the case manager there as a central point of contact is very important because there are services um, existing out there but our clients are not able to access them. They're finding it difficult to to turn up to these services um, to get the support that they need. So having a central point of contact and a case manager that's going to be with them every step of the way we think is a very important step Mm. in breaking these cycles. And um, yes, absolutely, this should be part of a a new model of legal service delivery. And uh, community legal centres are actually being very proactive in terms of incorporating this into the ways they do their work. So Mm. uh, we're co-located with the Mental Health Legal Centre and we're both within the Centre for Innovative Justice. And um, the Mental Health Legal Centre also runs a very successful uh, case management and social work program mm. through their practice because um, their clients also have, you know, vulnerabilities in relation to mental health and accessing services. So um, we're seeing a lot more, especially in the community legal sector, mm. um, that these more holistic types of legal practice are being incorporated. And yes, it's absolutely the way we need to go. And let's talk a little bit about um, prisons. Um, I attended an International Women's Day event in March, um, which LACWA participated in. Great event. Um, And the event was about gender responsive justice and alternatives to prison. Um, How can we better support women who are, um, number one, in danger of going to prison, number two, when they are in prison, and number three, once they leave prison? Well, in relation to the, the first question, um, early intervention is really so important to try to interrupt and avoid this prison trajectory. So mm. if we can recognise these problems of unstable housing, mental health issues um, and histories of trauma and try to address those in a supportive way before a woman is at risk of going into prison, then we think we can divert that pathway away from prison and into community support. Mm. But I think we also need to question fundamentally the need for imprisonment as an ultimate punishment. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does it actually achieve for women with traumatic histories and traumatic pasts who have these underlying issues that are not being addressed? Mm -hmm. Um, Prison is a very poor um, therapeutic setting for Mm -hmm. women to address issues of trauma. So if we can address those issues in the community, we can really start to reduce the numbers of women who are going to prison and really reduce the need for imprisonment as this ultimate punishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think also once once women are leaving prison, we mm-hmm. need to continue to support them and try to have a continuity of care there because um, prison really interrupts all of the community supports that might have been in place before a woman is, a woman is sent there. Mm-hmm. Um, so some sort of continuity of care, especially around housing, is extremely important in order to ensure the woman doesn't return them in the short term. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and let's, ta- uh, let's talk logistics. How do people get in contact yeah. with LACWA? 
Well, we've got a website. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get information about us, mm-hmm. and that's www.lacw.org.au. You can email us, info, so I-N-F-O, at lacw.org.au. We're on Facebook, so our Facebook page is um, LACW uh, VIC, V-I-C, and you'll find information on there about uh, a recent fundraising campaign that we're running, which is some justice dinners that we're encouraging people to host um, in order to raise awareness for the work that we're doing and also help us with some fundraising. So they're occurring on the 2nd of June. Um, there's information about that on our Facebook page. Um, and you can contact us by phone, which is 944-88930. So we are located um, within the Centre for Innovative Justice at RMIT University, and that's on Victoria Street in Carlton. So please do get in touch with us if you've got any questions. Um, And, yes, it's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Elena. It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren, George and myself, Anya. We just had a chat with Eleanor Pappas from the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women about women and the criminal justice system. Um, they have a website that is lacw.com.au if you need further information. And now we're going to hear a song from one of our Tuesday Brekkie faves, Sampa the Great, with the song Flowers. And you're back on Tuesday Breakfast. It is Tuesday, the 15th of May. It's going to be a disgraceful top of 14 today. And you're here with Anya and myself, Lauren. Um, On the line with us now, we have Santilla Chingaipe, uh, who is an award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker. She's worked for SBS World News. She's reported from across Africa. And her work explores cultural identities, contemporary migration and politics. And in 2017, she presented a documentary for SBS called Date My Race. Um, We're also just very excited to have her on the show with us this morning because we think she's an incredible woman. So, Santilla, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, So, you are speaking at the upcoming Feminist Writers Festival at a session titled Resist, Words for the Feminist Activist. Can you tell us a bit more about this session? Um, I, yeah, so it's it's essentially kind of, uh, in many ways, you know, when you think about um, women and women's voices and the importance um, for those voices to be amplified, I think some of that gets lost um, in conversation and I think it's important to um, speak to other women that are using their voices to um, amplify the voices of other women, but also the causes that, that really, really matter, which is why I'm very excited that 
um, my co-panelists, uh, Asha Wolf and Tanine, who, who have both been very, very vocal um, in a number of um, issues. But also, I guess, kind of playing on that idea of, um, you know, whenever women do speak out and are outspoken, you know, um, the sort of misogyny that comes with that in terms of, um, you know, uh, either being difficult or... Uh, trying to cause trouble or whatever the, the, the negative binaries that, that we tend to be placed in. So I guess it's kind of um, having a conversation about how that comes up and how to deal with it when it does come up, but also highlighting the importance of, of women's voices in advocating for fairness and equality um, for everyone. Mm, absolutely. And not just talking about women's issues um, or being emotional when they do speak. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and also just this idea of like women's issues. I think women's issues are everyone's issues. Exactly. You know, yeah. I think if, if we have a situation, I think I was reading something the other day where the the rates of um, uh, infant mortality um, are higher, you know, in Indigenous communities than in the other communities. And these are issues that are facing Australian women. And I think that they should be issues that all of us are prioritising and thinking about and thinking about ways in which, um, you know, we can improve better health outcomes for all all Australians, and um, and if some women are being left behind, then I think that's incredibly problematic, and it's up to all of us to really, you know, call for changes and, and figuring out ways of finding solutions. Mm, absolutely. And on that note, I'm interested in um, how you think words have the power to change things. You obviously use them a lot in your work, so... Yeah. I think words are incredibly powerful. Um, I think everything, most things really begin with words in whatever language it is, you know. Um, ours happens to be English here in Australia, but I think words have a way of either, you know, uplifting people's lives or, you know, disrupting them. Mm-hmm. And I think when words aren't used carefully, um, they can lead to the marginalisation of certain communities, as we see repeatedly, particularly in the media. Um, but also when used uh, in a in a fair um, and ethical way, I think words have the ability to shine the light on on the truth and and and, and better inform people and 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 allow people to make um, conscious uh, choices in their lives. Um, you know, by being armed with accurate information. So I think it's, I, I think words are very important and words do matter. And I think the the language that's used does matter. Um, you know, when I, obviously as a feminist, I mean, I'm very fascinated by the, the use of language when it comes to describing women and the binaries in which we're placed in. It's like women can't be um, more than, you know, one thing or two things and, and this, this, this need to, to put us into binaries. You know, it's either you're difficult or you're subservient or you're good or you're bad or, you know, all these sorts of things. And I find that language to be very not just frustrating, but very interesting in in, 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 in in what that then does leading into women that are receiving this, you know, and, and, and the need or the urgency, rather, for some women to want to conform to um, a certain ideal simply because um, there would be less pushback when it comes to how the world interacts with them. So I'm very, um, I'm very interested in the use of language and obviously the impact that it has on people's lives. Um, but also we'll continue to stress the need for it to be used responsibly simply because it does have consequential um, impact. Mm. 
Absolutely. And I just I was thinking while you were talking just then, um, something I was hoping to get the chance to talk to you about, and this seems like a good segue. I saw you speak recently at the I Am Not A Witch screening with Candy Bowers and Sister Zai. Um, right. And I was really interested in the theme that the three of you were discussing, and I think you brought it up, um, about people taking the film literally or, you know, as, as kind of truth, even though it's a film of magical realism. Um, and as mm-hmm. you pointed out, it's not accurate um, of life in Zambia. Um, but that's sort of a theme that has been coming up a bit on Tuesday Breakfast, and it's one that you just spoke to, is this idea of kind of typecasting or pigeonholing women or and then women of specific cultural backgrounds um, mm, mm. who write or who make art. And so then if they are asked to write or they're asked to speak, it's largely about, you know, race or cultural identity or whatever, and they mm, aren't really afforded mm. the same kind of depth of understanding or nuance or allowed to be fictional or satirical or whatever. Um, mm. Yeah, we had a guest last week who said, you know, women of colour can write fiction too, Um and I just wondered mm. what you thought about this because it so ties back into what you were speaking about just now with women generally. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just, it's just I don't know what it is. I mean, I do know what it is, but I probably won't articulate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think I, I, I find it extraordinary the limits of our imagination when it comes to um, people that don't share the same experiences as our own. I think we have this, which is really weird, especially when it comes to literature. Because when you think about literature, so it, it is about you know being exposed to different worlds most of the time that are very different to your own, and being 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 let the, letting the characters kind of take you into this world and not um, and being being lost into the story. So I find it very interesting when um, there is a reluctance to kind of imagine that writers from different backgrounds, um, mostly you know uh, writers of color. Um, have limitations with their imagination, you know, as though the only things that people can write about are from their cultural experience and the and the expectation that the work should be read through a cultural lens as though you're going on some safari to learn something um, about a certain community and culture. And it's also incredibly unfair because it places a large burden on, 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 on writers of colour to, I guess, um, you know, not have the, 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 the constraints, you know, like, because most people that want to write just want to write whatever it is that they want to write. They don't want to write and kind of be thinking about the fact that they might be speaking on behalf of a community. But it's a very difficult thing when you're dealing with um, decades and decades and decades of lack of representation, particularly in the, in, in, in Western contexts, um, of the histories and the stories and diversity within diverse communities. And so, most writers that will enter the scene from a certain background will usually be the only ones. And because of that, there is this unfair um, burden that's placed on them to be the spokespeople for whatever kind of group they represent or multiple groups in some instances. And um, I think that's very, very unfair because it, you know people should be allowed to let their imagination take them wherever they are and that work to be interpreted in that way not as something else because like you rightly point out we don't necessarily do that with uh white writers for example but also you think about how many of us have grown up with work that has been predominantly written by white people and predominantly white men straight white men um and how we don't necessarily treat straight white men in isolation in 
in, in, a, in a homogeneity. We treat them in isolation as individuals. Um, but every, mostly every other group um, tends to be read as though they are speaking for all of those people. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that there hasn't been a diverse representation of, 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 of writers and different writing and different kinds of stories. But at the same time, I, I'm always, I always veer on the side of optimism. So I, I, I also get excited and encouraged by seeing, uh, especially now there's a, a young wave of, um, a new wave of young people that are really pushing for stories and for telling their stories and for telling them in their way without the constraints, without the pressure. And they just want to, want, want to be afforded that, that same dignity. And that excites me because that means that that starts to open up um, the possibilities and hopefully those that are in the, gate, in the positions of gatekeeping, um, whether it's in publishing, whether it's in film, whether it's in um, other related industries, um, have no choice but to pay attention and also give them um, that privilege, if that makes any sense. It makes so much sense. We're sitting in here nodding, nodding, nodding our heads. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I think you're right about this this new wave. Um, it's pretty exciting time. I mean, I saw Jenny Zhang speak last night and, you know, the Sydney mm. Writers' Festival just happened and all of the conversations that were being had, um, and especially around that um, women can write whatever they want, however they want it, and, and this is something Absolutely. that people... Yeah, it's really um, it's exciting. And and they and so they should mm. and so they should. I think, I think, um, you know, sometimes as 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 and this is because of misogyny, really. Um, you know, we've let other people's imaginations dictate our lives for so long. I mean, most of um, these ideas about femininity and whatever women are supposed to be have come from men. You know. Um, and we've allowed that narrative to continue to hijack and dictate how we go about living our lives. Um, and that's why I get so excited whenever there's um, female writers on the scene because they dare to push the, 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 the realms of possibility. And I think it's a fantastic thing. I think it's a fantastic thing when we can have young women being brought up reading books about women that are very, very different and are complex and complicated and contradictory and you know, flawed and, and that all of that is fine, mm. you know. Um, and so that, that excites me in that way because I just sort of think that, um, that then hopefully sets, sets young women on the path of, you know, not having to stress about all the other societal expectations of who they should be and just get on with the business of living their lives and being who they, they want to be, you know. Absolutely. Oh, I could do this for hours, but um, <laughs> our time has reached its end. Um, but I will just remind our listeners that Santilla will be um, participating and chairing a session called Resist, Words for the Feminist Activist, at the Feminist Writers Festival, which is coming up. Um, Santilla's session is on Sunday, the 27th of May in the afternoon. I think it's at 3 p.m., 3 p.m., um, at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. You can get tickets from feministwritersfestival.com. Um, they are very affordable and it is well worth the money and it's going to be a fantastic weekend. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll see you at the festival. And that was Santilla Chingaipe. And now we are about to hear an interview that Anya will do. Oh, um, all right, we'll be right back. Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job 
without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55 on the AM dial. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Um, We are about to go to a song. However, my computer is just having a little moment. Ah, there we are. And we're going to hear um, a song by another 3CR fave, Ms. Lauren Hill. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Lauren and myself, Anya. It is currently 7.59am, um, so I hope you're all out and about doing some productive work in your day. As our listeners are probably already aware, this coming Thursday, the 17th of May 2018, is the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia, also known as Ida Hobbit. Up next to talk about her social enterprise dedicated to stories of ethnic queer people is Mikara Ramsing. Thank you for joining us, Mikara. Thank you for having me, Anya. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Oh, well, thank you. Nice, brisk, sunny morning in Brisbane. (laughs) I can imagine. Um, Let's jump right in. How did Ethnic LGBT Plus begin? Yeah, look, I suppose it began the day I was born as a a gay South African um, Indian woman. Mm. And I've been on this incredible journey with my parents, with them leaving everything they knew to immigrate to Australia 14 years ago to give us kids a better life. And for me, in my adolescence, beginning to understand my sexuality as a gay woman and wanting to bring them a big source of my confidence and my support into who I am as a gay woman mm. and then being met with a lot of fear and a lot of misunderstanding and being told that I was becoming too Australian, that being gay wasn't something um, uh, I was born with, that it, was, it wasn't part of my Indian culture, that mm. I was forgetting my dharma, an Indian concept meaning 
the family you come from and who you are. And this began um, an eight-year journey of huge internal conflict for me where I really struggled between my cultural identity and my sexual identity. Mm -hmm. And for years, I kept trying to bring my parents into who I am and the journey I was going through. And finally, after moving out of home um, for an appropriate cultural reason, like securing a job, because I felt that just simply moving out of home would reinforce their narrative that I was forgetting my Indian culture and the values they had taught me, mm. I finally created a safe place and could bring them into who I am as a gay South African Australian Indian woman. And I realized in this journey that I was not alone, you know, in multicultural and diverse Australia where one in five are from a migrant background, 27% don't speak English at home, and 11% of young people are identifying across the sexual and gender diverse spectrum. I knew there was a growing cohort in Australia that faced these challenges that I faced. And so it was simply sitting at my kitchen desk and wanting to share my story that I learned how to do a WordPress site. I sought the respect and permission to tell my family I'm sharing our story because I believe it saves lives. Mm -hmm. And this is how Ethnic LGBT Plus started a year, about a year and a half ago and played quite an important role then in the marriage equality debates where mm -hmm. this issue was forced to be talked about in all the homes of all individuals that live in Australia. So that's really where the journey began. Mm, thank you so much for sharing that, Mikara. That's, that's beautiful. And, um, you know, I've perused your website um, quite a bit myself, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Mm. Um, what kind of content does Ethnic LGBT Plus publish? I'm really heartened to hear that it could be of value for <laughs> you, Anya. And, you know, just reinforcing that narrative, you are not alone because, when you don't see yourself, and, and this was um, something I had experienced, you know, looking to my Cal communities, I couldn't see another gay Indian woman. And looking to the LGBT plus support at the time, I couldn't see another gay Indian woman. And when you can see yourself, mm. it's so powerful. So the main purpose of ethnic LGBT plus was to be a safe place for these individuals to share their stories, for mm. them to be able to see themselves. It also collects any academic literature or surveys collected in the space mm -hmm. to see what the literature says about the experiences of culturally and linguistically diverse CALD LGBT plus individuals. Mm -hmm. And it also provides links to support groups and mentoring. I've got some fantastic partners in the space who are keen to provide um, role models for individuals in this space. Amazing, amazing. And Ethnic LGBT Plus, um, the website talks a lot about the cultural issues um, that are intertwined with the fear and stigma of coming out and staying out as queer. Mm -hmm. How do we begin to change these cultural norms as we know it? And as an Indian woman myself, what should I be doing? Yes, powerful questions and questions I've been asking myself for mm -hmm. a long time. Look, um, I think it's uh, proper that I first just articulate that Really, the issues that CALD LGBT plus individuals face that are specific to them being people of color or being culturally and linguistic diverse are threefold. And the huge first one is language. Simply in the notion of coming out, that's not always a known term amongst CALD communities. Mm -hmm. And rather, sometimes the term is coming in, in coming home and inviting family members and those who we want to be a part of our identity. And the second huge barrier that we see is this struggle, this internal conflict between cultural identity and sexual identity. 
and you, you face a lot of, you're forgetting who you are and, you know, you're becoming too Australian. This idea that being LGBT plus is a Western notion, this can be extremely confusing for the individual. And a big piece of advice that I can provide there in my own journey is don't internalize because when we internalize all the isms we face, which cowled LGBT people face in terms of racism and then homophobia, transphobia, biphobia, we tend to project. And I know sometimes the worst perpetrators of violence in this space has come from community members, mm. has come from reinforcing that idea of shame and fear from community members. Absolutely. And it's because that hasn't been processed. And when we don't process, we project. Mm. So I encourage you to first reflect and sit on your own isms to make sure you're not perpetuating any of the isms you had to experience and keep talking. Mm. We need to shed light on these issues. So much fear and shame can be built when we don't talk. And when we don't talk, we don't see how not alone we are. So if you feel safe to do so, reach out, because I assure you and to all community members, you are not alone. And realize the power you have of people like myself who will stand by you in these times. And let's talk about the places that people of colour currently occupy in queer spaces in Australia. Do you think there are specific problems that they face in being in and owning those spaces? And how can we better equip them to do so? Completely, Anya. So I think the question really is, what does it mean to be gay, to be lesbian, to be to be transgender in Australia? And the image that comes to mind, and this is, purely because of representation by the media, it's not the face of a, of a person of colour. Mm. You know, when we talk about gay Australia, we think of the the, the, the classic gay white man, mm. you know, and, and what that lifestyle involves. And that lifestyle is often very different to the lifestyles then of what is expected from cowled communities. And that is all they are seeing as well. So when their child comes and tells mm. them that they're a member of the LGBT plus community, mm. that's the narrative that the cowled communities face. So the problems though are, are threefold in summary. It's that huge language barrier, not having words like um, lesbian, gay, transgender, intersex, or queer or questioning in the native language spoken at home at times mm -hmm. that can be spoken about in a non-negative way. And then also not being able to see oneself in the society they live in. What does it mean to be gay? And then also facing extreme, often extreme homophobia, transphobia, biphobia from the Cal community, and then racism in spaces where there is LGBT plus communities. So mm -hmm. These issues are specific to CALD um, LGBT plus individuals. And I know from working in the refugee and migrant space, you know, questions that come up then is how does my orientation, my, my sexual orientation affect my visa? You know, these are mm. things um, that aren't thought about unless you're in that position and very specific to these individuals facing um, the reality of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And how, how do people submit content to ethnic LGBT plus? Um, it's all on the website, Anya. So I'm really excited. We're launching the new website um, next week, and th that is in light of the fact that um, Westpac has really gotten behind ethnic LGBT plus. Oh, amazing! And, yeah. Um, has in, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, um, as a social change fellow this year, I have the opportunity <clears throat> to travel from October to December and do an Indo-Pacific tour of LGBT plus people's experiences in the region, in places like Malaysia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, to bring back their stories. Because the reality is a lot of these communities, when they move to Australia, 
they still don't feel Australian for a very long time mm. and they very much identify with their country of origin and the cultural context of that. And it's important to place stories within context mm. to understand that coming out or coming in is not easy for a lot of cowled LGBT plus people, despite living in a country now that has legally recognized same-sex marriage, mm. there's a lot there in a lived reality that still makes those bubbles very real, those cultural contexts very real. And so to share your story, and if anything you take away from this, it's just the power of stories to save lives. So mm. jump on ethniclgbt.com. Um, please jump on the contact page. You can share anonymously. Um, share in a way that you feel comfortable um, when you walk away and do it in your own time or read stories of others to know you are not alone. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us, Mikara. And that's that's very inspiring. Um, and everyone in the studio is just sobbing in the corners. <laughs> <laughs> and have a great oh, morning. Oh, thank you. I love the work you guys do. So thank you for having me a part of it. And thank you. enjoy this week of education and story sharing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast with Lauren and myself, Anya. It's 8.17am and it's still pretty cold outside. 
Um, before this song, we were listening to Mikara Ram Singh, who's a social entrepreneur and who is amazing. Um, and we talked about her website, Ethnic LGBT Plus, and um, the work that she does with Keld LGBT Plus individuals. And as for the songs, you heard Mirage by Okenyo, who is an amazing Sydney musician, and um, a little taste of Female by Sampa the Great. And now we are so lucky to be joined by Emily Scott, who is um, a lawyer who was raised in Australia and is now currently working in Cambodia and is also a friend of Tuesday Breakfast and is calling us from... Where are you at the moment, Emily? Um, currently in, sitting in my bed in oh, Cambodia. Yeah. <laughs> in Cambodia. Well, thank you so much for, um, I don't know, staying up, getting up, whatever it is, um, and calling us from Cambodia. This is a treat. No worries. Thank you for having me. So this week, um, something that you've been working very hard on launches on Thursday night. Um, and I won't spoil the surprise, but can you give us an overview of the project? Yeah. Um, so since um, probably for just over a year, um, as part of Liberty Victoria Right Advocacy Programme, um, our criminal justice team um, have been working on this project, which we're launching uh, this Thursday. Um, and it's been a really lengthy process involving um, research into the criminal justice system, um, consultations with stakeholders. And so it became apparent to us through this process um, that the current diversion system in the youth and adult criminal justice um, and the youth and adult criminal justice systems are really in need of reform. So we've drafted a report outlining all the issues, um, outlining all the issues associated with this problem, which we're going to be launching at the event on Thursday. Um, we've got some really exciting panelists. Um, copies of the report will be available on the night. And yeah. So I might take you back a step because, um, so obviously you guys are in the criminal justice team of lawyers, but for those of us who are not lawyers or criminal justice experts, what is diversion? What does that mean um, for a person who's been charged with a crime? For sure. So diversion is the process um, by which if an individual is charged with a minor offence that's out of character, um, theoretically they should have the option of being diverted away from the justice system that prior to a matter going, um, going to court, um, the, as the law currently stands, the prosecution had the discretion to decide whether um, that person could have the option of diversion, which might mean uh, undertaking a diversion program, um, which could be a number of things, um, perhaps participation in um, mental health sessions in the youth justice system. There's a program by which youth can undertake a rope course with policemen. Um, and if the program is successfully completed, um, then they avoid having to um, go to court pretty much um, and avoid the prospect of a criminal record. Um, so this diversion, the opportunity to be diverted from the criminal justice system can have really significant consequences um, mm. for an accused. And so we've identified a number of problems with the fact that this decision as to whether to grant diversion falls entirely within the discretion of the prosecution. So uh, despite the significant consequences it can have, it's not a decision 
before open court. There's no transparency around the decision to refuse. Um, so if a decision is made to deny diversion, um, an accused won't have an opportunity to um, understand the reasons for that or make any submissions in that regard. Mm, and so that's really significant in this space of um, accusations of the criminal justice system being used um, disproportionately for different communities and um, for offenders with particular characteristics and that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And it means that um, it's producing outcomes that are really inconsistent. Mm. Um, if, depending on the prosecutor, one person might be um, afforded the opportunity to go to diversion. Um, it's also absolutely producing results that are detrimental to minority communities because because of the lack of transparency, there's so much scope um, for prejudice, bias, racism. Um, and so it, it is a really um, it is a really significant issue that we're um, pretty excited to be addressing in now. And so what does the report say about, in terms of, you know, if Daniel Andrews called you tomorrow and said, okay, I'm going to, um, <clears throat> I'm going to fix up the diversion system and I'm going to make it so much better and I think that um, your team is the people to tell me how to do it, how's he going to do it? What's, uh, Anya's giggling at me, sorry. <laughs> but what are your recommendations? Um, I mean, so first and foremost, our aim is um, law reform, so to mm -hmm. to basically remove this provision that um, diversion requires that the prosecution consent. Um, and so then um, ultimately we think it should be a decision for the magistrate to make in open court in situations that are transparent. Um, we understand that um, achieving law reform um, is quite difficult and Daniel Andrews probably isn't going to call me tomorrow. Um, Never give up. So Sorry? Never give up hope. <laughs> Never give up hope. Um, so we've also put forward um, sort of an, an interim idea, which is um, implementing these guidelines um, pursuant to an in-principle agreement um, between the police and the courts by which um, where a police prosecutor um, is of the view that diversion shouldn't be granted in a particular instance, um, the matter should be escalated to a senior prosecutor. Um, if the view is still that diversion shouldn't be granted, then there should be um, the opportunity for the matter to be heard in a newly created diversion list in the court. So uh, this is a more informal way of trying to bring about some transparency to this process, and um, it's, which involves the input of a judge. Right. Okay. Um, well, I think that sounds pretty reasonable. Daniel, if you're listening, um, do you think that, um, I mean, we've sort of, this has been a bit of a theme of the show actually, but in this kind of, you know, we've got a state election coming up and this whole tough on crime, um, whose um, who's tough on crime budget is bigger, let's keep it clean, um, in this kind of space in Victoria at the moment where it's just, um, you know, it's really escalating, do you think that um, diversion programs will be seen as... Um, yeah, as, as an option by the politicians? I mean, I really I really hope that um, this tough-on-crime attitude doesn't um, translate to a complete um, lack of reason because um, when you actually 
actually look at the value of diversion programs and the importance of rehabilitation and reducing recidivism for our society as a whole, um, the benefits aren't just for those who are charged with minor crimes. Um, there's so much benefit, uh, economic benefit to the community and benefit to the community and families in general to keep people out of the justice system. Um, so I think um, the importance of our cause at the moment is heightened um, even more so in this tough-on-crime environment. Fantastic. Um, and I guess this is just one um, that speaks to a bit of a broader issue. What do you personally think about the place of the law in um, in creating better societies? I think um, that the law plays such an important part in all of our lives and that the measure of a society can really be assessed by the way it's to deal with those who are vulnerable in the community and those for whom human rights might not be a popular topic. Um, as we're seeing with this diversion, the current diversion um, scheme, the law has the power to fundamentally alter our lives. So the idea that the law should be improved to bring about a better society um, has really motivated this program, I think. Amazing. Well, we are very excited about the launch. Um, and so it's happening Thursday night at the Multicultural Hub, um, which is on, I think it's on Elizabeth Street, sort of near the Queen Vic Market. Um, you can get tickets through Eventbrite or you can go to Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project on Facebook. Um, we are very excited and we're upset that Emily won't be there, but um, we'll live tweet it for you so you can... <laughs> we'll be like you're there. I'll be there. I will be there in spirit. Oh, fantastic. All right. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Emily. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Emily Scott from Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project's criminal justice team ahead of the launch of their report called Justice Diverted, which will be launched on Thursday evening with a panel discussion in Melbourne. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. 
Thank you for joining us this morning on Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It's been a pleasure to have you, and we will see you next week. Going on to Accent of Women now, where um, Giselle will be interviewing two amazing people